Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, June Grovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, September 6th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico in her first week at her new job. Ooh, hello. <laughs> and Mary Agnes Carey, my colleague at Kaiser Health News. Great to be here. Also this week we have our Bill of the Month feature. KHN's Chad Terhune has a story about a bill so big it went viral. But first, the news. And since we didn't do news last week, there is a lot of it. First, that Affordable Care Act lawsuit in Texas. Our regulars will remember this is the case filed by 18 Republican state attorneys general and two governors and defended by 16 Democratic state attorneys general because the Trump administration kind of agrees with the Republicans who are suing them. The suit argues that because Congress repealed the penalty for not having insurance as part of last year's tax bill, that uh, and because the ACA was upheld by the Supreme Court in 2012 as a valid use of the taxing power, the entire ACA is now unconstitutional. The Trump administration said it didn't think that was quite the case, but perhaps parts of the law protecting people with pre-existing conditions might be unconstitutional. Anyway, the case got its first hearing on Wednesday. What do we know about what happened? Well, the judge, my colleague uh, Paul Demko, was down there uh, in the courtroom, and it sounds like the judge, who is very conservative, this case was steered towards him for a reason. Well, it was certainly steered yes. towards that court where the chances of drawing a really exactly. conservative judge were really high. Yes, they definitely picked a favorable venue for challenging the Affordable Care Act, and the judge sounded fairly sympathetic to the Republican attorneys general's arguments. Um, he even went so far as to suggest – so a lot of this is coming back to congressional intent and the um, Republicans challenging the law are saying that Congress never intended there to be an ACA without an individual mandate. And the Democrats defending the law say, well, that's crazy. Congress considered repealing the entire law so many times, again and again. And didn't have the vote. Couldn't do it and decided – consciously to just repeal the individual mandate. But the judge sort of speaking a little off the cuff, spitballing is, is how my colleague characterized it, said, well, maybe they really intended to repeal the whole thing since they knew that courts before said that the individual mandate is the pillar that upholds the entire thing. So maybe Congress really intended to repeal the whole thing in this roundabout way. I and don't know. No, and nobody mentioned it at the time while they were doing the tax bill. Right, right. So I don't know if that's going to go anywhere, but it is a little signal from this very conservative judge about what he's thinking. So the first thing this judge has to decide on is whether to um, to preliminarily enjoin the entire ACA, which is what the, the Republicans are asking. What would that mean? That would be crazy. We've got open enrollment starting November the 1st. Uh, I think even the Trump administration representative in the courtroom was like, we don't want to knock people off health insurance. This could cause disruption. I believe that the attorney also went to the point to say we support coverage of pre-existing medical conditions. This is a big political problem for Republicans on the Hill. They've got a bill. They say answers that it really doesn't because it wouldn't necessarily. We'll talk about that in a minute. We'll talk about that later. But (laughs) nonetheless, it would be a really huge deal if they got the, the injunction right away. Do we have any idea when we're going to hear about this? 
the judge said he'll try to get something as soon as possible. Um, but, you know, he didn't roll from the bench. And uh, as we went into the studio to record, there had not been an injunction. And so, I, I checked right before. Yes. There had not been anything. This court decision is not going to be the last word on this matter. No. So even if the judge finds for the state attorneys general, one would expect that the there will be appeals, that there will be further consideration of this case. And the timing is quite interesting because the oral arguments sort of coincided with the confirmation hearings for Judge Kavanaugh, who's been nominated to the Supreme Court. And Democrats have used this case as one of their most sort of pointed lines of attack against him, that he could be a vote to take away the ACA. Now, in fairness to Judge Kavanaugh, I think we really don't know if that is true. We don't know if the case will reach the Supreme Court, of course, and we don't know how he would rule on it. There's nothing in his record that really tells us particularly what he would think about this legal question. And in fact... And all the attempts to ask him at the hearing so far have come to <laughs> nothing. He said, Absolutely cannot nothing. comment on an ongoing right. case that hasn't reached me yet. That's but the case, the right. sort of, the, the oral arguments in this first phase of the case are probably not going to result in anything too disruptive in health policy world in the short term. But I think politically... Uh, there are just are lots of kind of cross currents that having this in the news means that people are really thinking about pre-existing conditions. So we have seen many Democrats are using this issue as part of their campaign strategy. A number of Senate senators who are running for re-election in red states are running ads about this or talking about it at their campaign events. Uh, there was polling from the Kaiser Family Foundation this week that showed that very large majorities of Americans believe that the pre-existing conditions protections in the Affordable Care Act should be protected. And just as a reminder, while the litigants bringing this case, the Republican attorneys general and governors, want the entire Affordable Care Act to be invalidated. The argument that the Trump administration is making is, no, you can keep most of the ACA, but we believe that you have to do away with just the pre-existing conditions <laughs> protections. So uh, That was not a political decision <laughs> on their part. No, I clearly. mean, their argument, their argument is a legal one, is they say, look, we look at the law, um, you know, they're are these rules about if you take away one piece of the law, what is the most surgical way that you can uh, carve out related provisions? And their view, and you know, I think that this was sort of reflected in the arguments that they made in oral arguments, was you know, it's not that we want to do away with pre-existing conditions. Like we like pre-existing conditions protections, but you know, we look at the law, we don't see any other choice. And in fairness to them, this is the same argument that the Obama administration made during the last. A set of lawsuits about this question of severability. So there was a challenge to the individual mandate in that case uh, back in 2011, 2012. And the justices asked the government, well, if we find that the individual mandate is unconstitutional, what does that mean for the rest of the law? And it was a similar situation where the Republican states that brought the suit said, get rid of the whole thing. And what the Obama administration said was just get rid of pre-existing conditions. So this is a kind of refrain of that old argument. But I think politically, it just draws everyone's attention to pre-existing conditions, which remains extremely popular part of the Affordable Care Act. To, to Which brings us to, to what Mary Agnes was talking about before. Uh, Ten Republicans in the Senate last week introduced a bill that they say would protect people with pre-existing conditions on the, with because they're, after all, supporting this lawsuit, or maybe not the whole thing, but probably the Trump administration part of it. So they said, don't worry, we're going to take care of pre-existing conditions, um, except it wouldn't, would it? No, they would have to 
give you coverage, but they wouldn't have to necessarily cover, cover your treatment. Your, right. right? They, your they condition. Insure, <laughs> your condition. So yes. it may not cover your chemo if you have cancer. It may not cover what you need for a chronic medical condition. So it, in no way, most analysts are saying in no way does it cover people with pre-existing medical conditions to make sure they get the treatment that they need. And because of that, it's not even getting support from people who you would think would support something like that, like the Susan Collins sort of side of things. And it's looking like it originally it was sort of intended to be political cover, and now it might not even get a vote. And instead, a lot of the attention Although, is on this lawsuit. Interestingly, and we're going to move on in just a second, I went to the original press conference when the attorneys general you know, filed the lawsuit. And what they said at the time is that this was, or not during the press conference, but talking to some of them afterwards, that this was basically politics for them. They wanted to, the, the base, the Republican base is still deeply disappointed that the ACA didn't get repealed. And this was a way for them to say, and a couple of them are running for other offices. In fact, two of the attorneys general are running for the Senate against embattled Democrats. Um, and this was a way to, to rile up their base for the midterm, say, look, we're still trying. Um, so you have that. But when on the was hand. that? That was February. February. Things have changed <laughs> since February. Well, but no, I think they, I think they still think that sure, working sure. to get rid of the ACA is important to bring out the Republican base. Whereas the Democrats are also looking at this as a political gift. They came out Tuesday, you know, after the the Senate lunches. There's there's a press conference with the leaders of the the Republican and Democratic leaders, and the Democrats spent the entire press conference talking about this, talking about pre-existing conditions in the Texas case, instead of talking about the Kavanaugh hearings. So obviously, the Democrats think this is a, a really good issue for them to run on. Right. And and as uh, Kaiser's polling indicates, they have a point. <laughs> yeah, they do have a point. It's the most popular part. Yes. All right. Well, the other big news of the week, as we've also, as we, we have already started to talk about, the Senate Judiciary Committee is uh, grilling Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, what have we learned from Kavanaugh that's health related? I guess we've already talked about how he won't talk about this case, but has he said anything else? Barely. It's a, it's a lot of... Non non statements and non committal statements. Yeah, he's he he did what any nominee would do. Absolutely commit to nothing. Say you know for Roe, for example, that it's um, he understands the passions around it. It's settled law. It's a precedent entitled to respect. He was asked several times from Democrats to speak. Will you uphold this? And he doesn't answer that question. But no nominees do. Yeah, it's it's been a while since yeah. they've been able to pin down a nominee on abortion. Right. Um, in fact, I think I'm not sure they've ever been able to pin down a nominee on abortion. But we don't. I mean, there isn't very much doubt that that you know, if he's approved, that he will vote with the the conservatives. There's a conservative block already that's ready to overturn Roe. One one would presume, one would have no reason to presume otherwise. Let's put it that way. My colleague Adam Liptak, who covers the Supreme Court and and really understands the institution and who's a lawyer, so he really understands the law, did a really wonderful piece, which maybe we can put in the show notes, where he looked at the various things that could happen to abortion law in a new Supreme Court. And so he kind of spelled out a couple of different scenarios about uh, different approaches that both the cases could bring, but also that the just different ways the justices could rule on abortion cases that would change abortion rights in different ways. And his view is that overturning Roe altogether is a pretty unlikely circumstance, but that what's much more likely to happen is that the justices of this new Supreme Court, if Justice Kavanaugh is confirmed, will think differently about abortion restrictions within the kind of structure of Roe and decide, you know, there's this question of what represents an undue burden uh, which, for women which seeking itself, abortions. By the way, the undue burden itself was sort of was a, was a slight undercutting of Roe from mm -hmm. 1992. That yeah, was there's this 1992 Casey decision that's also important. So 
I, I think we don't obviously don't know what cases will come before Justice Kavanaugh. He's confirmed. We don't know exactly how he will rule. But I think it's worth realizing that the Supreme Court does not need to overturn Roe altogether in order to make a very significant change in the availability of legal abortion in or states that are that are trying to uh, scale it back. access. Yeah, well, 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 there's a lot of other reproductive health news this week. I thought this would be a good time to talk about it. Um, and some of these are cases that might well come before the Supreme Court. Exactly what you were saying, Margo. Not, you know, sort of facial challenges of Roe, but uh, things things where the, the court could definitely turn one way or another. So first in California, the legislature has passed and sent to the governor a bill that would require public colleges and universities in the state to stock the abortion pill in their on-campus health centers. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, Not only it bucks the trend of laws that seek to restrict abortion, although it is California, but also it uh, it came from an effort by California college students themselves who actually lobbied the legislature to do this. You know, until now, I, I've seen young women, at least activist young women, um, tended to be on the anti-abortion side. They're just the, the anti-abortion forces are really, really, really well organized. I'm wondering if that is changing or if this is just California. It could be that women are, you know, that, that um, like you noted, these were student activists. They made their case. They had to get it through the legislature. There's nothing easy about that. It's passed the state assembly. I think it goes back to the Senate. They're expected to pass it, and it goes to Governor Brown's desk. So, I mean, over the years, I have heard this, and maybe you guys have too, that the thought is perhaps younger generations of women haven't understood some of the fights that have come before on reproductive health. And perhaps this is an example that people do understand. They do understand the threats to current law, and they want to take steps to make sure at least from their level at the state institution, the state university level, that this would be available to women and it would be required to be covered. It's very interesting. And that's I think tr- it's oh, also good. interesting to think about in the sort of context of the history of me- of this kind of medical abortion where you take a pill, you, you, know, you go to a doctor, you... Uh, get a pill, you take the pill at home, you essentially uh, have a miscarriage at home. And when this technology was developed, I think there was a view that this was going to become sort of the dominant way that abortions happened, that it would enable many more medical providers to be able to offer abortion services to their patients, that it would make abortion a little bit easier and less invasive. You wouldn't have to have surgery. You wouldn't have to go to a surgical clinic. It would be less expensive. Uh, There was, I think, a lot of hope around the people who developed this technology that it was going to really change abortion and make it kind of easier for women, more accessible for women, lower cost. And that really hasn't happened, or at least it hasn't happened broadly, because uh, anti-abortion activists and legislators have have erected a lot of barriers to access for medication abortion. A lot of states don't allow it. They don't allow telemedicine for it. They require it to be uh, administered in these surgical facilities. And it's They require you to come back sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a a second pill. Take the pill in person. So it's interesting to see California is finally like kind of a long time after, uh, you know, this uh, technology initially uh, got out into doctor's offices, really thinking about how to achieve that promise of abortion that's a little bit more convenient for women. Uh, but it is, I think, important to realize that this medication abortion is not as easy everywhere as it will now be for California university students to but, access. But it was what Alex was talking about before. It's just it's not just legality. It's mm-hmm. access. And this is obviously right. Know, and in so many places in the country, abortion has already been restricted so much that it's the the right to it under Roe is essentially meaningless for a lot of the country already, even without the expected changes from the courts. 
So we'll see what happens to this. Um, all right. Also on the reproductive rights front, we had action concerning the Trump administration. Um, on the one hand, the Department of Health and Human Services finally made grants for the Title X family planning program. They are several months late this year. Uh, and they did fund Planned Parenthood affiliates who've traditionally received much of the program's funding, but they only made those grants for seven months instead of the usual three years. It seems like this is uh, about trying to finalize regulations that would force Planned Parenthood out of the program. We've already seen the administration back off efforts, on the other hand, to steer federal teen pregnancy prevention funds to programs that promote abstinence after a series of court decisions. We're all about the courts today. (laughs) Um, Do we think the same thing's going to happen here? Obviously, Planned Parenthood is is already, uh, I guess they're ready to sue. We're waiting for the final reg that would say that, that, you know, you have to, that you're not allowed to to mention abortion uh, in, in counseling if you get family planning, federal family planning money. So we've talked about the proposed Title X regulation on the podcast before, and the details are a little bit complicated, but the kind of upshot is that if this regulation becomes finalized, Planned Parenthood would probably not receive any more Title X grants, which is a big deal because, first of all, it's a big source of funding for Planned Parenthood. So that matters for Planned Parenthood's kind of funding and their mission. But also because Planned Parenthood is such a large provider of Title X services, and particularly in some parts of the country where it's really the only provider. And so there is a concern that it would really limit women's access to family planning and other kinds of reproductive health services. So We don't know if it will be finalized. I think this is a sign that they want to finalize it or finalize something like it so they can give out new grants under these new rules. But uh, it it seems absolutely certain that if anything close to the proposed rule is made final, that there will be legal action on this as well. Yeah, I'm just I'm sort of interested that on the teen pregnancy program, which we we haven't talked about that much, but there were a number of lawsuits in almost every part of the country. The administration Uh, lost. The the administration (laughs) lost. Judges from all stripes said, no, this is beyond your statutory ability mm-hmm. to, to Although, to Julie, I do feel this. like you're the historian on this, but I think on the Title X regulation, they may be on firmer legal ground. Well, it has, yes. There was, there was a similar regulation in the Reagan administration. I'm so old that I covered it. Uh, and it went to the Supreme Court. And actually, the regulation was upheld. I was always surprised during the George W. Bush administration that they didn't trot it back out. Um, but there, I mean, that's not to say judges are different times are different. You know, they could, as we've talked about, the Supreme Court can change. <laughs> uh, though this, uh, it seems unlikely that this Supreme Court would. Um, we'll have to sort of see how this goes. I was, I was interested, though, that, the, that the, the judges, how many judges said that the administration could not sort of steer the teen pregnancy um, funding towards abstinence-only programs. That was, that was not something that Congress had intended with that program. Um, you know, on the other, other, other hand, Title X hasn't been reauthorized by Congress since 1984. That That's how controversial it is. That's how long they've been fighting this whole Planned Parenthood thing because that's why Title X hasn't been reauthorized since 1984. It's been funded every year, but it, they, Congress has been unable to actually – state as a body what it wants to happen with the federal family planning program. So. And sorry, can I just add one small factual thing, which is Title X funds uh, do not go towards abortions. They they uh, fund other kinds of contraception, other kinds of reproductive health services. Uh, and what this rule is trying to figure out is how bright a line do you draw between the abortion side of the house and the non-abortion side of the house. And they're trying to prevent uh, providers that offer abortions from receiving any Title X funds. 
Although we should point out that only half of Planned Parenthoods actually do abortion, so it's all, it's all. This, this is this is very. Uh, this is just an article of faith with anti-abortion uh, activists who just don't want Planned Parenthood to get any federal money. Period. All right. One more on the reproductive health front. On Wednesday, a federal judge in Texas struck down yet another abortion restriction. Uh, this one is a follow-on to the bill that was struck down by the Supreme Court in 2016. This law, which is similar ones passed in several other states, and I'm just going to quote the New York Times' description here, would have required hospitals, abortion clinics, and other providers to arrange for the burial or cremation of fetal remains, regardless of a patient's personal wishes or religious beliefs, and regardless of whether the remains were from an abortion or a miscarriage. Uh, The judge in this case, who was a Ronald Reagan appointee, said that, among other things, uh, it was a burden because there are not enough vendors who can actually dispose of the remains in compliance with the law. So this was sort of Texas's idea when their last set of restrictions got struck down. They came back with another set of restrictions. And now those have been struck down. There seems every indication that this will be appealed. And this, this who knows, this may be the next abortion case that, that gets to the Supreme Court. Um, it, it, it seems just to what, what Margot was saying earlier. I mean, there are lots of cases in the pipeline. Um, I am I am I actually am a little bit surprised that this one got struck down. I would have thought that it might have been upheld, but one would presume that there will be similar cases in other circuits and that they will be upheld and then the Supreme Court will basically have to take it. Um so, you know, basically when they're asking Judge Kavanaugh about reproductive health, it's more than than just Roe, as you said, right? And it's hard for him to credibly call all of these things hypotheticals when they are well on their way to, I mean, maybe his desk, yeah. <laughs> if confirmed, which yeah. is likely. That's, yeah. Who, who knows about the, the when when we will see a health law case, although this one in Texas might happen. I guess Texas is where is where everything gets. To the <laughs> well, it seems to be a real centerpiece of challenges on abortion. Tough, tough state laws, lots of legal challenges. It's sort of a place that people are watching. And, and paying attention to and an activist Texas government. Yes, and it's a and it's a big state where the distances are substantial, and so I think when these kinds of restrictions are put into place, uh, women can you know have standing to bring lawsuits because their access could be constrained. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our Bill of the Month interview. This is part of a joint project between KHN and NPR. Every month we investigate and dissect someone's real-life medical bill. If you want to send us your bill, there's a link on the KHN website, and we'll post it on our podcast page this week, too. So here is my chat with Chad Terhune, who wrote the latest Bill of the Month story. Then we will come back and do our extra credits for this week. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast KHN senior correspondent Chad Terhune to talk about the latest Bill of the Month story. He's joining us via Skype from his office in California. Welcome, Chad. Thanks for having me. So let's start from the beginning. This month's story is about a high school teacher from Austin, Texas, named Drew Calver, who had a heart attack and was taken to a local hospital. This is the kind of thing that literally happens every day, but his experience wasn't what happens every day, right? No, he got the uh, the unexpected with a six-figure bill from the hospital. But you're right, it started on a Sunday where he had a surprise heart attack. He's collapsed on his bedroom floor. He voice texts his wife, who had just left to go to the grocery store. A neighbor rushes over, scoops him up, rushes him to the nearest hospital, which did happen to be out of network on his school district health plan. And that was kind of the beginning of the rest of the story. Now, now the the hospital. I mean, when he sort, I guess after they stabilized him, he realized the hospital was out of network and asked them about that, right? 
Yeah, he uh, even when he was in the middle of his care, you know, he knew this was going to be expensive and complicated and said, hey, are you going to take my insurance? What many of us would ask, uh, he was worried. And they said, sure, we will take your health insurance. You know, don't worry about it all. Everything will be taken care of. And, of course, that wasn't the case. Uh, his care was great. He recovered. He was uh, sent home. But then later he started getting these bills. And the bills he was getting were for $109,000. And this is after his health insurance had already paid the hospital $56,000. This family had very good health insurance. Yeah, he was a, I mean, he's a teacher. Most public employees have pretty good health insurance. Um, how did the hospital, you know, explain the fact that they were sending him a $100,000 plus bill? Well, this was uh, what we term uh, a balance bill situation or also known as a surprise bill. The hospital was at a network and they were not satisfied with Aetna. Uh, the health insurer that ran the school district health plan was paying them. So they chose to go directly after the patient for the balance, what was left after the bill, because the total was 165000 Insurance paid 56000 which when I researched the story, I Talked to many experts. We analyzed the bill in great detail, and they said fifty-six thousand was more than generous. Uh, many people put it at twenty-seven thousand to thirty-eight thousand would have been a fair reimbursement. So Aetna was quite generous. They had paid the hospital. The hospital said, "No, we want more." And so they went after the Calver family, and uh, for months and months they got these bills. At first, they thought, well, this is a mistake. It'll go away, but it didn't. And then eventually they started getting a threatening letter from the debt collector. And I think that's what really struck a nerve with a lot of people was, one, this family had very good health insurance. And then, two, just the idea of getting a $100,000 bill, and it just doesn't seem to go away. And, you know, that could bankrupt most families. I think that's really what scared a lot of people when they read the story, that this could be me. Now, a lot of people are under the impression that this kind of balance billing is illegal, and it is in some types of insurance, right? Yeah, we we kind of have a hodgepodge of laws across the country, and I think that's also what I tried to do with this story was explain the landscape. Many states have taken action. They've tried to uh, shield patients from these types of surprise bills or balance billing, particularly in an emergency where you really don't have any say on where you might end up. It could be an out-of-network hospital, and you shouldn't have to be, uh, you know, harmed in that situation. So many states have taken action. Right, including Texas. Uh, And they all have, you know, variations. Sometimes they're trying to limit hospital bills. Sometimes it's just doctors at a hospital who are out of network. And uh, some try to, you know, remove the patient from the situation saying, hey, you, Mr. Hospital, you, Mr. Health Insurer, the two of you need to work this out. And sometimes they try to put them in a mediation program. But what I pointed out is most Americans get their health insurance through work, and most 60% are in self-insured plans, and they fall under federal law. They are not under the state laws, so they would not have that protection. As we stand right now, federal law doesn't really have a protection for patients on these types of surprise billing situations. So a lot of people are still exposed to these types of situations. They may not get a bill for 100000 but it could be 5000 10000 That is a lot of money for most Americans. So what ended up happening to the Calver family? They have this $100,000 bill. Uh, you write the story. The, the story, you know, is uh, goes up on the website. It's on NPR. Um, Libby Rosenthal, our boss, was on CBS uh, uh, this morning. A um, lot, lot of publicity. Then what happened? 
Yeah, this this story definitely went viral, quickly traveled everywhere. Normally, my stories don't get picked up by People magazine. That might be one indicator that this really uh, did captivate a lot of people. And I think a lot of people could relate to this family. Uh, a couple, two young kids, a school teacher. Uh, and this bill he was facing was nearly twice his annual salary. No way he could pay this bill anytime soon. And yes, as soon as we uh, published the story, it aired on NPR on Monday. Within hours, I got a message from the hospital saying, well, we're sure this family is going to qualify for our financial assistance program. So never mind that bill for 109000 They only owe $782. So this was an abrupt, sudden change of heart by the hospital after the publicity. But even then, you know, I talked to the family and they really weren't wild about paying $782 because, again, they really felt they did not know anything. And the idea that they had been talking to this hospital for months back and forth about that bill, they were sent to the debt collector. You know, they, they didn't really want to jump on this offer and they still had to supply a lot of financial details, fill out an application, turn over tax returns. They were still going to have to go through a lot of hoops. So a few more days went by, and eventually the hospital said, look, after looking at it some more, making some other adjustments, you only owe $332. And it had been a long week, a long journey for this family. And they said, okay, we'll pay that. And that finally resolved the bill. Now, now they had paid, to be clear, they had paid a portion when Aetna paid, right? They they paid their whatever it was that, that they owed according to their insurer? Yeah, that came up a lot. Uh, like most of us, we have co-insurance, co-payments, and according to their health plan, they did owe $1,400, and they had been paying that off. So the patient was uh, doing their end of the bargain. They were paying off that bill that their health plan had said, look, this is your fair share. Uh, so this hospital bill was in addition to everything insurance had already paid that the family was already paying off as their co-insurance. So it, it, the danger seems to be, obviously, that even if you have pretty good insurance, if you have an emergency, you can get caught up in a really bad financial situation. Could this family have done anything different to avoid this? There was the brief moment when they're, you're in the emergency room and then you're transferred, say, to a regular hospital room. It's kind of like, when do you become stable enough where you can be transferred? It's really putting a lot on a patient to kind of figure out when that situation is. And I talked to the hospital about this, and they said, certainly, yeah, if we get to a point where a patient is stable and maybe we could transfer them across town to an in-network hospital. But, you know, they admitted that's kind of a tricky situation and we never want to jeopardize a patient's health. So there was an opportunity there, but I think that's very hard in an emergency situation. Certainly, if you were in a long hospital stay, there might be an opportunity to to transfer you to another hospital. But in an emergency, I really don't think consumers can do much more. Sure, you want to go to an in-network hospital, but when you're trying to save your life, you need to go wherever is closest. And is there anything that the the average consumer can do to to sort of prevent a situation like this beyond kind of knowing what your network hospitals are, at least closest to your home? Once the bills start coming, I generally tell people to slow down. Don't pay anything right away. Let the insurance process play itself out. And that can take months when you have a hospital, various doctors that treated you. You're going to see a lot of paperwork, but just kind of let it play out because the insurance company will often pay a deeply discounted amount off the hospital's full build charges, and you want that whole situation to play out. 
And then if the hospital or doctor's office still is coming after you for some balance on the bill, there are various people you could turn to. You can call up your state insurance department and see what are my rights? Does this seem appropriate? Certainly, you want to ask for an itemized bill from the doctor's office or the hospital. What are they really charging me for? Is this appropriate? You can go to your employer's benefits department and again ask, should I really uh, owe this amount or did the health insurance company satisfy it? So those are different people you can turn to in this situation. Well, all very helpful advice, Chad Terhune. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Okay, we are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Who wants to go first this week? Mac, I could go sure. next to me. Absolutely. All right. Well, there you go. I have a story from my colleague, our colleague, Fred Schulte. Here's the headline. Giuliani's consulting firm helped halt Purdue opioid investigation in Florida. A Fred masterfully takes us back to November 2002 uh, and when Rudolph Giuliani, who'd been the former mayor of New York City, had a consulting firm right after 9-11 and basically Purdue Pharma hired him to come into Florida and look at the attorney general in Florida was looking into Purdue Pharma, looking into OxyContin, what they knew about its addictive properties, what they told doctors, what they told patients. The bottom line is with Giuliani's help, Purdue Pharma settled that Florida AG investigation that had threatened to expose early illegal marketing of the blockbuster drug OxyContin, according to company and state records. So basically, in exchange for a settlement that is viewed as now, even then, as small, uh, basically, the the plug was pulled on the investigation, and it was kind of a precursor, which we now look back and realize – Uh, the addictive properties of that drug, what was known at the time. Fred has done a tremendous amount of work on this, and it's pertinent not only to looking at current addiction to opioids and to deaths, but also the fact that many lawmakers and President Trump want to restrict opioid use. So while many of us know Rudy Giuliani as the president's personal attorney on the Russia investigation, he's got a deep, rich history that touches on the opioid issue. Yes, he does. Margo. Uh, I wanted to uh, mention an article from Cheryl Clark in MedPage today called Death Certificate Project Terrifies California Doctors. (laughs) And I happened upon this article in the course of reporting a story this week about uh, two really interesting studies, two randomized controlled experiments that found that sort of sternly worded letters to doctors could actually reduce overprescribing of dangerous drugs. So there are two of these studies. One of them looked at opioid prescribing, and it was a county in California that sent doctors a letter and said, we wanted to let you know that one of your patients who you prescribed an opioid medication to has died of an overdose in the last year. Uh, you know, we, we here are some risk factors that contribute to overdose deaths. Here are our state guidelines for opioid prescribing. If you need more information, you know, uh, here you go, but you know, and we just want you to be aware of this. We want you to be aware of the guidelines. And uh, that letter resulted in a 10% reduction in opioid prescribing by those physicians. Uh, another study looked at the overprescription of antipsychotic medications among senior citizens and people with disabilities. So these are drugs that are really good if you have, say, schizophrenia or other kinds of psychotic illness, but they are often prescribed to people who don't have those diagnoses because it seems to sort of make them drowsy and calm them down. Uh, it turns out that uh, those drugs are quite dangerous for those populations, and uh, there's been a big push to try to reduce prescribing. It's been hard. So similar thing, uh, CMS sent a letter to a number of doctors and said, hey, you're a real outlier on this. 
this is really dangerous. We're surveilling you. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) A little more threatening. And that resulted in like a 16 percent reduction in prescriptions for these antipsychotic medicines. So there's this, you know, there's there's obviously this active movement in trying to figure out, you know, how can we use letters to try to shift medical practice away from dangerous things? Because if you can get it right, it's a super cheap intervention. You know, it's really hard to like do a continuing medical education class or change CDC guidelines. You know, it's, it's there's just a lot of effort in trying to get doctors to change the way that they practice medicine. These studies show that in some cases, actually, something relatively inexpensive um, can work. But both of those letters were like a little bit sharp, right? One of them is like somebody died and it's maybe your fault. And the other one says, you know, we're CMS and we're watching you. Uh, so what uh, Cheryl Clark's story looked at was a more aggressive thing that the state of California did where they contacted some doctors whose patients had died of drug overdoses and said, there have been complaints about you. We may have sanctions against you. It was much more kind of explicit about uh, the possibility of them losing their medical license or having other kinds of sanctions brought against them. And the result was just this huge backlash. All of these doctors freaked out. They hired lawyers. They got into fights. They were writing letters. And I think it just shows, you know, and we don't know, these. the state of California is investigating these doctors, and it is possible that some of them, despite their protestations, uh, really were prescribing drugs in a dangerous way and should have their medical licenses looked at. But my guess is that actually what happened is that this was just like a step too far, that they were trying to get the attention of doctors in the same way that these uh, letter writers and these studies were and try to scare them just enough that they started to pay attention and didn't it wasn't just noise of all the mail that comes in their inbox, but they overdid it. And so I think it just shows that uh, these strategies can be effective, but sort of calibrating them so that they're scary enough to work and not so scary that people completely lose their minds uh, is going to be a challenge. <laughs> Indeed. Alice. Well, we've uh, been talking on the podcast about uh, what's going on in Arkansas with Medicaid. And so they were the first state and so far the only to implement a Medicaid work requirement, um, although some other states could very soon follow. And they have a very strict three strikes and you're out kind of system where if you fail to report that you have worked 80 hours per month for three months in a row, you lose your benefits for the entire rest of the year. in a row or is it just in the three times it's in a year? It's total, but there's been three months so far, three yeah. opportunities. In this case, it's three yeah. months in a row because there's only been exactly. three months. So it's like three strikes and you're out. So uh, we just this morning, right before we came in the studio, got the numbers of the people who had three strikes and now will lose their benefits. And it's 4,574 people, which is more than half of the people who were subject to the requirement and didn't get an exemption. And Health Affairs did a great piece where they went down and interviewed people both in rural and urban counties down in Arkansas. And two-thirds of the people they interviewed hadn't even heard about the new requirement, um, which is pretty troubling. And just had heard nothing about it. And even the people who had heard about it didn't know how to navigate it and if they were exempt or not and how to file their hours. And, of course, in Arkansas, it all had to be online. It all had to be online. And many people they interviewed reported that they didn't have a computer, didn't have access to the Internet. Um, Arkansas as a state has the second worst Internet uh, home access rate in the country. And so this is definitely going to be a part. There's already a lawsuit, but these numbers will for sure be cited in that lawsuit. It is likely to come here uh, to D.C., um, same judge that handled the Kentucky case. Um, So something to watch for sure. 
Okay. Uh, well, mine is from the New York Times. It's called The Last Company You'd Expect is Reinventing Health Benefits by Margot's colleague, Reed Abelson. And it's about how Comcast, of all companies, is pursuing sort of a kinder, gentler kind of health benefit for its employees, uh, including going out and hiring its own startups to help people navigate the health system and its financing. But what I really love is how Reed contrasts the high-touch customer service provided to its employees with their health care with the reputation that Comcast has <laughs> as having some of the worst customer service in all of business. Or as I put it on Twitter when I first read the story, come for the health policy, stay for the well-deserved Comcast snark. Uh, Margo, <laughs> you said you had, you had an update to, to this story. Yeah. So uh, I think we have talked before about this initiative between uh, Amazon, J.P. Morgan, Chase, and Berkshire Hathaway to try to you know reinvent healthcare. Uh, and they've hired Atul Gawande, who's this very famous Harvard physician and journalist, to run it. Uh, they announced this week who the number two was, who was probably the person who's actually going to run it. And they, the person that they named is a former executive at Comcast. So uh, what I love about Reed's story uh, is that it shows a totally different model for how to do health benefits that save money. The kind of prevailing wisdom over the last few years has been like hike up cost sharing, try to give patients skin in the game, give them information about prices and turn them into consumers. And that somehow those tools are going to reduce health spending. Comcast has made basically the opposite bet. What they're trying to do is make the health system as easy to navigate as possible. So in addition to a pretty comprehensive health benefit, they're giving people all these wraparound tools to help steer them to the right provider, to get second opinions, to just make it easy for them to get their health care. And they have had really impressive results. I'm really curious to see uh, first of all, whether the Amazon group starts to adopt some of these kinds of strategies, but also whether other companies will take a look at what Comcast is doing and whether we'll start to see this kind of customer service model of health benefits delivery become a new normal. We will definitely be looking for that. That is our show for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Mary Agnes Carey. At Sanger Katz. At Alice Olstein. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.